0: And As you are, if you would turn with me to the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah and the first chapter. Isaiah chapter 1 and commencing there at verse 1. The word of our God. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation! a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken anymore? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers, devour it in your presence. And it is desolate, as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard, as a lodge in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. We return thanks to God for these public readings of his word. We look to him for his blessing under them this evening. All of God's word, and so the prophets as well, urge us to see the truth. But friend, it's important for us to understand the way in which the scriptures come to us with that exhortation. You see, when the scriptures come to us and urge us to see what is real, urge us to to contemplate truth, well friend, they don't come to us urging us to think of something like a like a parallel universe, an ulterior reality. That we're not being exhorted to think of an Atlantis or an Narnia. You see, the Word of God, when it comes to us, it urges us not, not to see, as it were, a picture of another realm, a fourth dimension. No, the word of God comes to us, offering us glasses, spectacles to see the world around us, because we don't see it correctly. It's important, friend, and I can't stress how important this evening enough, that we understand that that is the way in which the scriptures urge us to see the truth. It comes to men, and it says, the world in which you live That which you see in front of you, you don't see it aright. And friend, the prophet Isaiah, like all of the scriptures, urge us to put on these spectacles. They urge us to see the world around us aright because you and I, we don't have a correct view. And in fact, it's worse than that. You and I don't even see how little or to put it more accurately, how much our vision is corrupted. We don't see how much we stand in need of these glasses. The prophet Isaiah comes to his generation urging them to see these things, and as this is the word of the living God, friend, the exhortation is the same for us. This is the only way that you and I can see the world around us array. As we come to this text, you'll notice that the prophet does so at the very beginning with something of an indictment. We took up last Lord's Day evening the first four verses, in which there the prophet Isaiah begins as God's barrister, so to speak, urging heaven and earth to bear witness against Israel, rather Judah, as God makes his case against this national visible church. Friend, you notice that this is one indictment really running from verses 2 to 9. It's one indictment, but in two forms. In the first first several segments of this indictment, the indictment is drawn from Judah's behavior under God's blessing. Whereas the text we take up this evening, verses 5 to 9, is drawn from her rebellion under God's chastening. But it's all one indictment, and it's a very comprehensive indictment. Here, the prophet takes Judah under both general considerations, under blessing and under affliction, and he draws a single indictment from both. Now, friend, what is the indictment? In one sense, you have it there in the fifth verse. It comes to us in something of a question Why should ye be stricken anymore? Verses 5 to 9 really give us this idea of affliction. That it is God who is the one who is striking this national visible church. But the question at the end of it is, has it done any good? Have they heard the rod like Micah exhorts his generation? The question is rhetorical because the answer is no. They haven't. Now as you look at these several verses, this description of God's affliction, you might ask the question, well, when did the rod fall on Judah in such a way? You remember that if, if you were with us two weeks ago, we took up the reign of Uzziah, and, we re- and you remember that that was a reign largely characterized by not just by blessing, but by incredible blessing. Blessing that looks far more like the reign of Solomon than any other before, and really any other after. And so the question is, well, when when did this striking occur? When did Gazra of chastisement fall on Judah, as we find it so described here? And the answer, friend, is varied. It depends on what commentator you look at. but, But in one sense, the question was asking the wrong thing. If the prophet is looking back to Judah, looking back to those periods of affliction that she faced prior to Uzziah's reign, certainly the import the the importance of this current message still remains. If he's looking to the future, if this is, in other words, a foretelling of what's to come, the sense is the same. And, And it's the same as well if we're looking at Isaiah, looking at the final years of Uzziah, where the scriptures teach us that after Uzziah's defection, then the blessings of God were removed. I'm inclined to take the latter, but as I said before, The import of the message that Isaiah brings to his generation remains the same regardless of what particular time in history he's thinking of. And friend, as you think of this text, as he brings this indictment, the principal focus of the prophet is that these are a people who were unmoved under God's blessing and were equally unmoved. Under his chastisement, they were insensible under both. Friend, that is really the point of these of these verses, verses two to nine. And what this teaches us, both for nations and also for individuals, is that obstinacy under God's chastisement is both an aggravated and a dangerous sin. Obstinacy under chastisement is an aggravated and dangerous sin. I want us to see how the prophet brings this to our attention, because he does so in various ways. This evening I want us to see how he describes this obstinacy, this insensibility. So we have its description in verses 5 to 7. In verse 8 we have something of its danger described for us. And then finally we'll see in verse 9 the deterrent both to this obstinacy and to the danger that's promised. And so take, first of all, the, the description the prophet gives to us of Judah's obstinacy under affliction. Again, verses 5 to 7 give, us, give this to us in illustrative language. Looking back at that question we began with, why should you be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. Literally, the sense is, to what purpose? To what purpose should I afflict you any further? Seeing that, you will revolt more and more. It's a powerful question because it's obviously not so much a question. It's not a query as such. It's far more a statement. You have manifested time and again your recalcitrance. And so to what purpose should the rod fall on you any further? It profits you Nothing. And then he goes on in verse 6 to make his case through analogy. It's the analogy of, it's a striking one, it's quite graphic. Because in verse 6 you have a picture of one who is riddled with disease and covered with bruises, wounded and diseased. It's It's a striking image because of course when you and I think of God's temporal chastisements, pestilence, and other kinds of physical afflictions are, are, as it were, met in this one image. He says, "This is what you are like. The rod has fallen on you as it were, from head to toe. There's no point. There's no point of your existence that has not been touched by my chastisement. You have been rattled, you've been ravaged by pestilence and by other manifest afflictions. And in verse 7, he goes on to explain that not just by giving us the image of a single person afflicted, but he gives really a, a more fulsome description. He says, your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your land, strangers devour it in your presence, and it is desolate, as overthrown by strangers. This is certainly something that happens toward the end of Uzziah's reign. And what the Lord is saying here in this text, very pointedly, is I, I have brought my rod against you in every imaginable way. I have brought it against you in public ways, in ways that affected the entire nation. I have brought it against individuals, so that individuals knew the pains of pestilence and of wounding. But the charge that really lies behind all of this is that, nevertheless, Judah was obstinate. Judah was insensible through it all. Now there's a charge in this, friend, that you and I are supposed to see. And it's a charge that extends to nations and to individuals alike. And that is that the prophet teaches us here that one's failure to recognize affliction as a call to repentance is the sin that is here reproved. Failure to recognize affliction as a call to repentance is Judah's problem. And friends, stated in that way, obviously you and I know that that it's not just Judah's problem. This is a moment when the prophet Isaiah comes to us and hands us the glasses. He says, you need to see providence through these lenses. And if you don't, Well, the indictment that is falling now upon Judah will fall upon you as well. The question you and I have to ask is, well, how how does one come to this point of insensibility and obstinacy? How is it that we can have a distorted view of providence so as not to see what we ought to see according to this text? The obvious answer, the first one that we could give here, is that, of course, there is an inbred atheism in man. An earnest desire to to exclude God from the mind. That's another way to, to describe it. And you see this right throughout the scriptures. Take Amos 3, just for example. The prophet there says, Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it. Note what the prophet is saying. And this is so very crucial. On a very fundamental level, he's saying, If you see calamity in the city you need to trace it back to its first cause. It is the Lord who has done it. Friend, I know that we can see that God rules over all things. He sits on the circle of the earth and does all his pleasure, but I want you to recognize that what the prophet is urging here is not just the vocalization of that truth, but it's internalization. That as soon as you and I see these things... Our minds and our hearts immediately trace these things back to the hand of God. Now that's the first step. The second thing that we have to recognize is there is also an inbred deism that you and I are so very prone to. And again, the scriptures bear witness to this as well. The Lord says through his prophet Zephaniah, he says, I will punish the men that are settled on their leaves, that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. Oh, friend, that that is a spirit that lies well upon our society and churches today. We may not go so far as to deny the workings of God. But too often, friend, I find that we are slow, slow in our generation to believe that God will be active in our generation as he was in the past. That somehow God is no longer so interested in visiting sin with temporal judgment or in, blessing, or in temporal blessings, those who obey. That God is no longer so interested in that kind of work. That's precisely the mentality that you find there in Zephaniah. You find it also in Hosea. The wicked are described as those that consider not in their hearts that I will remember all their wickedness. Friend, all of these things conspire to make men and women insensible under affliction. All of these things will will mute, as it were, the, the clarion call of God's chastisements because they don't trace these things back to the Lord. This was Judah's problem, but friend, as I've already said, this is certainly a generational sin that's well-grounded in our society. There's also a kind of stupidity, friend, that that we can't miss either. You see that in the scriptures right throughout. Take Isaiah 22, for example. The Lord says to Judah, in that case, the Lord God of hosts did call to weeping and to mourning, but behold, joy and gladness, killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine, saying, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, in these texts that I've just read to you from other portions of God's word, all of them deal especially with national calamity. And we'll come to, a, 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 I think, a very important distinction toward the end of our time this evening as to why those texts are so important for our generation and why considering them nationally are so. But I want to bring it on the individual level at this point. It is true, as, as Job's case so aptly illustrates, as as the case of the man born blind in John's Gospel illustrates, that not every chastisement is is brought by God to individuals on account of specific sin. That's true, and we, we must acknowledge that. But one of the points that you and I cannot miss is that while particular afflictions may not come because of particular sins, every affliction is a call to deeper repentance. That's an important distinction that we have to keep. While particular afflictions may not be there to expose particular sins in every case, every affliction is of necessity a summons, a call to deeper repentance. And friend, if that's not heeded, if we don't use affliction in that way, this indictment still falls on us. We are still, in a very real sense, insensible under affliction as Judah was. And this is why, as you find in Hebrews 12, the Lord, speaking through his apostle, urging his people thus, he says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. The word despise there is not the word for hatred. It's the word for ignoring, overlooking. Overlooking. And dismissing that's such a crucial word, friend, especially for our generation. And I also, I, need to, I need to demonstrate, friend, that, that this evening, you and I, we, we may have, have a difficulty seeing that God does chastise us individually for particular sins, but he does. The Word of God promised that He does. He promises that that's a reality in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, friend, there speaks that God does this to his children and for sin. We need to acknowledge that reality as well. Otherwise, certainly, this indictment falls on us. But more briefly, I want us to consider, secondly, the danger that this obstinacy invites. And it's that which you have in verse 8. The Lord says there that Zion will be left as a cottage and a vineyard, as a lodge and a garden of cucumbers. Now, Those images, I suppose, are, are not very common to us. But, but the sense is there. The image that you're supposed to have is an edifice that stands in the midst of a level place. A, a place of civilization surrounded by desolation. And so, at the end of that 8th verse, he says, it is a besieged city. She's left alone. The idea is, Zion will be left And all of her surroundings will be a picture of wasteland and desolation. What's important to note here, though, as you look at this 8th verse, is that the conjunction there is really important. The conjunction serves not so much there to to join the reality of verse 7 to verse 8, but to show a consequence. In fact, you could even translate the conjunction there, the word and, as as until you reading, until the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage in a vineyard. Meaning this is something that as Zion remains obstinate, as this ecclesiastical republic continues in her sin, God will continue to visit upon her these afflictions until she has left like a cottage in a vineyard, a besieged city. My friend, what you and I are taught then in this text is that this obstinacy, this insensibility under affliction only invites greater judgment. It only invites further affliction. In Isaiah 22, again, quoting from that text that I did just recently, the prophet goes on to say of Judah, Surely this iniquity shall not be purged from you till you die saith the Lord of hosts. There's the danger. There's the danger. I'll leave you with that for the moment, but certainly we'll apply it at the end. But I want you to notice, friend, that at least we can say this much. If there's affliction and that doesn't drive us to repentance, what does this text urge us to expect? I think this is perhaps one of those points that we miss. And again, another moment where, where the prophet lends us the spectacle, so to speak. The expectation should be that the Lord will continue to visit until there's repentance or until he's made an end. That's the danger. Thirdly and finally, I want us to see the deterrent in the text, and that's in verse 9, which reads, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. The word remnant there could be literally translated, those who fled. Now, what do we make of that? You and I are supposed to see this as a people who are not fleeing judgment as such. But the biblical remnant, right throughout Old and New Testaments, are those who have fled the generational sins that God is now visiting. In other words, these are those who have fled the common iniquity, the common defection of their age. Uh, That's the same sense that's used throughout the prophets as it is used in the book of Revelation, even the text that we read in Christ's address to the church in Sardis. And then I want you to notice this. This remnant was left, and had they not been left, they should have been, that is Judah, ought to have been as Sodom and Gomorrah. And the sense there, friend, you ought to recognize is that the prophet is saying we ought to have succumbed to the same end as those two cities. Had God not left this godly body that had fled the defection of the age, he says we would have been as Sodom and Gomorrah, overthrown by fire and brimstone. Now, this third and this final point is striking. Friend, because I would submit to you again, this is a moment where the Scriptures come to us and urge us to change our perception of the world around us. Because what he is saying here is nothing less than that the preservation of the remnant was the deterrent to Judah's destruction. I suppose that's worth repeating. The preservation of the remnant is the deterrent to society's destruction. Hold verse 9 with all that's gone before, and that's precisely what the prophet is urging. Now what is this remnant, first of all? The remnant is the same kind of remnant as I've just been saying as the one described in Revelation 3 with regard to the church in Sardis. Described there, strikingly, in a very graphic way, as those who have kept their garments clean. It's a striking turn of phrase, isn't it? But the sense there is that these these are those who have studied cleanliness, in an age of filth. These are those who have worked and labored to keep a clean testimony before the world in the midst of of defection, not not in the nation, mind you, only, but even in the church in Sardis. The address, mind you, in, in Revelation 3, is to the visible church in Sardis before the incorporation of the church in a civil sense. That's very striking because he's saying there that there is a remnant within the visible church and these ones are described by their cleanliness. But I also want you to notice, friend, that in this text, and this is so very crucial for us, the remnant are not so much commended for being the remnant as they are here given as an illustration of God's mercy. Except the Lord, he says here, of hosts had left us, a very small remnant. You recognize what the prophet is saying there. He's saying that if there is a body of people that have kept their garments clean, it was only the Lord's mercy that was the cause of their faithfulness. It's a striking, striking thing where God attributes the godliness of this very small body to his own mercy. You remember, friend, how this is given to us um, twice in the word of God, once in Second Kings and once in Romans 11. God says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Note what the Lord is saying there. If there is a remnant, it is of his doing. And the prophet in our text, in Isaiah 1, says, the Lord has done this. He has left this remnant as an act of mercy and forbearance. Not to the remnant as such, but to the whole national visible church. Their presence there was a mercy to the nation, Oh, friend, this is again one of those moments that's so corrective for us. There's an old Jewish proverb that's based on Scripture truth. And it says that the world stands for the righteous man. In other words, that if there were no godly men, if there was no remnant, then you and I should expect that the world would fall because all that would be left there would be only the objects of God's wrath, and so it would be obliterated. And as I said, friend, that's a biblical principle. Just allow me to remind you for a moment what you find in Genesis 18. As Abraham and the Lord go back and forth with regard to Sodom, what is Abraham's point? Friend, the point is that would the Lord destroy a people if there was a remnant found there. No, says God, if if there were such a number, if at the end of the day there were ten, Sodom would still stand, and they would stand, mind you, and the, the language is so very clear, they would stand because there were ten. They would stand for their sakes. Sodom would not be overthrown for the sake of the remnant. I, I know perhaps I'm beating this to death, but, But it's so very important. According to the scriptures, the world is preserved for the elect's sake. And you can read Matthew 24 to see that the Lord says that himself. The days will be be shortened for the elect's sake, he says. And I can even give you another illustration from Genesis 6. When did the global flood come? It was not when the line of Cain had reached the zenith of their wickedness. You're not supposed to see it that way at all. When did the flood come? It came whenever the godly line had defected. That's what brought the global flood. When the remnant was reduced down to a single family, then the world was overrun with water. The world stands for the remnant. And if there's a remnant found in a place, says the prophet, it is God's mercy to that place. Now, as we close, friend, I know these are heavy things, and I know that these are, these are themes that are deep, and themes that certainly might distress. But we do have to ask, do, do we see the world around us in the terms that the prophet is setting, setting before us this evening? I mean, do we see affliction as a summons to repentance? And do we recognize that that if, if God sends affliction and it does not induce repentance, that we should expect greater affliction? And furthermore, do we see that if there is a remnant, that the very presence of that remnant is an act of God's forbearance to the nation as a whole? In other words, friend, have you put on the glasses? Do you see the world around you? Do you see Northern Ireland that way? I said to you that we would return to this idea of national affliction, and I will just very briefly. I want to read to you two quotes one from James Guthrie and another from Thomas Brooks on the issue of national chastisements. Guthrie writes, he says, God acts in absolute dominion with persons, not always for particular sin. But he goes on to say this, but no instance can be given from the scripture or church history of the Lord's dealing thus with nations. I want to illustrate that with Brooks just for a moment. Thomas Brooks goes on, he says, personal afflictions may come upon the people of God for trial, and to show the sovereignty of God, as in the case of Job. And those afflictions are not for sin. But general or national judgment never comes upon a people, but upon upon the account of sin. What are our forebears instructing us to see? Well, friend, acknowledging the distinction that we make with regard to individuals that at times God will visit individuals with affliction not because of particular sin, as sometimes a sovereign dispensation, a trial. We are not to make that distinction with regard to nations. Friend, if there is a national calamity, you and I are to recognize that that is chastisement for sin. Absolutely so, and it is to produce repentance. This is why our forebears engaged in days of of fasting and humiliation on a national level. It was not just to avert present danger. It was to acknowledge that when general judgments fall upon a people, it is because of national sins. The entailment of that friend, the striking entailment of that for you and for me, is that when God sends these national judgments and they don't produce national repentance. Our text urges us to have only one expectation. I said that these themes were difficult. But even in this text, friend, there is cause for rejoicing and comfort. And we do need to leave there. I want you to notice, first of all, that that the text is quite emphatic, that the remnant that is here in view in verse 9 is very small. What you see here is then that the paucity of numbers, the fewness of the remnant, it's not despised by God. This handful that Isaiah describes here may have been disregarded by their generation. But in God's account, they were crucial. It's, it's so friend, it's so encouraging in a day of decline to see that God so regards the Godly. It's so encouraging, friend, because you and I recognize that in our generation we are watching a decline that is not only rapid but increasingly more aggressive. And it's very easy for, for people to ignore the church, to ignore the godly in media and conversation. But a text like this reminds us, friend, that, that while the world may engage in that kind of disregard, God does not. But I also want you to notice too, friend, as you look at this text, you recognize that this is a remnant in the biblical sense. They are a people who have kept their garments clean. But in the, in biblically speaking, how is that done? How is it that there is a godly people at all? If I can go back just briefly to that quotation from Second Kings and Romans 11, there the Lord tells the prophet that he has reserved for himself 7,000 men who have not bowed to Baal. And the image that you're supposed to have there is that here are the many altars of Baal and these 7,000 men have not knelt at any of them instead they've worshiped at Jehovah's altar and how that's so striking friend because when you think of it in those terms you actually answer the question how there is a godly remnant the biblical remnant are those who go to the altar and i mean by that of course the lord jesus christ the one who is typified by those sacrifices in the old covenant and that as they go to him, there they are cleansed. And there they have those graces to remain faithful in a day of decline. What you are not supposed to see here, friend, is that these remnant, this remnant, that they through their good works have merited this standing with God. Never in the scriptures is the biblical remnant so described. The biblical remnant is the believing people. And in believing, friend, they are kept pure. It's always that order. Their good works in a day of decline are simply the fruit of their faith in Christ. There is no other way to be a truly godly remnant. And so, friend, that is the exhortation, first of all. You and I are supposed to be a people who repair to Jesus Christ for these graces to be faithful in a day of decline. And it's only as we go to him that we are given such grace. Resolve as much as you will to be untainted by this generation, and for all of your resolutions at best will make you whited sepulchres, a picture of life on the outside, within, nothing but the stench of death. No, you must be a biblical remnant, one that is a believing people. Repair to Christ for these graces. The second thing that I want us to see from this text as we close now is that there is an exhortation here for us. The exhortation of course to treat affliction as so many calls to repentance. The exhortation of course to expect that if there is not repentance under affliction, greater affliction is to come. But also the exhortation, friend, to remember that 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 your greatest civic duty is to be holy. I didn't say that that's your only civic duty. I didn't say that's all that your neighbor requires of you. But if it's the case that it's God's mercy that there's a remnant left, that if the preservation of the remnant belongs to the mercy of the nation, then friend, your holiness above all else is what your neighbor needs. What your co worker, what your fellow student requires. That is a fulfillment, friend, of a sixth commandment obligation, as well as, of course, a first. Do you see it that way? Do you see that your neighbor needs your holiness? That the nation needs your godliness? As we leave this text, friend, we we leave it again with the question, have, have we put on the spectacles? Have we put on the glasses that the word of God gives us to interpret not another realm, not another dimension, but the very world in which you and I live? Because that's what the scriptures demand us to see. All of these realities that are spoken of here, you will meet immediately as you walk out those doors. But how do you see them? And More than that, friend, how do you respond to them? May it be, friend, that in our day of decline, here in this place, the Lord would grant us eyes to see and that we would, for his sake, keep our garments clean. Amen.